Welcome to the CRISPR revolution. This is CRISPR Cuts, a podcast dedicated to the world of genome engineering. Take a break and join us as we guide conversations with an expert CRISPR cast about this cutting edge science. Hello everyone, welcome to CRISPR Cuts. Our guest today is Stephanie Shirky, and she works at UCSD. She's going to be talking to us about her latest therapy that's going to go into trials and all the process behind working on such cell and gene therapies. I've also with us my on and off co-host, Kevin Holden, who's the head of science at Synthago. So you all know him. So welcome, Stephanie. And hi, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Great to be here again, Minya. Absolutely. So yeah, Stephanie, let's just get started with some background. Could you tell us about yourself, maybe starting with personally, where you've grown up, what you like, dislike, and and then professionally? All right. First of all, I am right now a professor at the University of California, San Diego in the Department of Pediatrics. I come from France, as you probably can hear. And uh, so I did all my studies in Paris, at the University of Paris, and I always been passionate by uh, genetics as long as soon as I learned it at school. Shortly after, when I learned about gene therapy, I always knew this is what I wanted to do. And so I did all my my first uh, internship when I was 16 years old in Genetum, which is a, was a genetic institute. And I really tried to direct my path towards this goal. Um, and so I did my uh, PhD in the uh, Necker Institute in Paris. But at the time, it was, you know, gene therapy was still considered like science fiction. And so I wouldn't be able to do a PhD on on a gene therapy. So that was very not appropriate. So I did, um, I was involved in a disease called cystinosis because at the time when I was in master's degree, they were looking for the gene. And I was really thinking that it would be cool to go from the gene to gene therapy one day. So I started to do my PhD on that disease and I we found the gene, uh, we found the uh, function of the protein, I made the mouse model. And when all this was done, I came to the U.S. in San Diego at the Scripps Research Institute to learn about stem cell and gene therapy. And so I did my PhD in Dr. Antignac's lab, and I came in Dr. Salomon's lab for my postdoc. And so I learned about gene therapy and on cardiovascular disease. But when I was done and I was ready to make the turn in my career, and I became assistant professor at the Scripps Research Institute, I went back to the disease called cystinosis to try to apply everything I've learned about gene therapy on that disease. The issue with cystinosis was it was that it was the worst model for, for, for gene therapy because the gene is expressed everywhere, all the tissue degenerate, and the, the protein is not secreted. So this is why I thought that using the bonal stem cells was the path for that because they are able to integrate in all the tissues. And this is how I became expert in ex vivo gene therapy. After I, I, I had a proposition for a position at uh, UCSD and I accepted and now I, I became associate professor and professor now. And I still develop ex vivo gene therapy, not only for cystinosis, for which we are now in clinical trial, but for other disorders, including free cataxia now. 
Can you tell us a little bit about both of the diseases that you work on, um, how they affect patients and what some of the clinical outcomes are? So you are talking about cystinosis, right? Or free cataxia? Um, both of them, yeah. Okay. So, you know, this kind of, of disease that we call multisystemic are usually very impactful for the life of a patient with a poor quality of life. In the case of cystinosis, the, the disease starts in infancy with a kidney defect. And the patient uh, end up with chronic kidney disease and uh, very poor kidney transplantation. But also the eye, they have eye dysfunction that can lead to blindness, myopathy, endocrine dysfunction, bone disease. I mean, you name it. I mean, they really have so many uh, compli- clinical complications. And in the case of frequentaxia, this is a neurodegenerative disorders with uh, damage of the nervous system that lead to the loss of coordination, muscle function, and eventually heart complication. So where patients lose their ability to walk and they end up in wheelchair, and the heart dysfunction is a primary cause of death. In both cases, you know, as you see, for both death is, you know, it's an early death, unfortunately, and it impacts so many tissue that uh, this needs to be addressed. And and this is why it's complicated for um, gene therapy to replace this protein in all these tissues. What's your strategy, if you can kind of talk broadly about being that these are genetic diseases, how you foresee utilizing gene editing technology like CRISPR to, to cure the disease? On the ex vivo gene therapy, what we do is we use hematopoietic stem cells and we gene correct them or gene, you know, modify them ex vivo. And after we do a myeloablation using chemotherapy in patients to remove their own bone marrow stem cells, and then we do a bone marrow transplant. So then the hematopoietic stem cells reconstitute the bone marrow long term, they multiply there, and they integrate and engraft into tissues that are damaged. If you do the same kind of, of procedure to healthy mice, for example, or you know, healthy patient, the, the cells do not migrate. So it's really the beauty of ex vivo gene therapy is that it's a one-time transplant and the cells acting like intelligent vehicle that will bring the protein where it's needed. So that's very powerful technology. In the case of cystinosis, we added a gene and using a antivirus vector because the overexpression of a gene is not toxic. So it was very appropriate to use an antivirus vector that is, you know, very efficient to, to, to gene modify the, the, the hematopoietic stem cells to add the gene. In the case of, of free cataxia, of course, I thought, okay, let's, you know, use an antivirus vector, you know, again, and I know all the process for it, you know, and how to go to bench to bedside. So I thought this would be easy. <laughs> But uh, we were facing another challenge for frequentaxia, which was the, that the overexpression of a gene was toxic. So obviously, we couldn't add using a antivirus vector and add a gene. But the advantage of this disease is that all the patients with frequentaxia carry the same mutation in homozygous states for most of the time, and heterozygous state. I mean, meaning that it's always an expansion mutation in the intron one of a frataxin. This expansion can be, you know, a different size, and but the point mutation are very rare and are never, you know, are never, you never find a, a patient with two point mutations. So all the patients carry at least one 
mutation expansion. So in this case, I was thinking that it would be appropriate to use CRISPR-Cas9 to cut this expansion mutation in because one, it's in all the patients. So you do one technology and it will be applicable for all the patients. But most importantly, it's in the intron. So we can cut, and if it's if there's some mutation when you know it's going back, it's not a big deal because we are dealing with an intron. So we thought that this was the most ap- appropriate technology for frigataxia. So this is what we developed. We developed, so we use CRISPR-Cas9 and two uh, guides RNA to, to be able to remove uh, this expansion mutation in Ventron 1 of uh, Frataxin. Thanks for explaining that in detail. It's uh, interesting to know why you have to take two different approaches for both the diseases. I think a lot of, in general, we see a lot of interest in the field uh, to know how how to take your research right up to the clinic, right? A lot of people want to do that, want to see that. But of course, there are a lot of challenges in the way and it's not as easy. So since you've had that experience and are currently doing this, can you talk a little bit about what are the challenges uh, in taking a kind of research therapy into the clinic and how have you been overcoming those? When I decided to go to clinic and so do all the steps, you know, from the preclinical studies to the clinical, fortunately, I didn't know how challenging it was. It was good to be naive because I was like, this is like, you know, climbing a mountain. And when you think that you climb, you know, you are at the top, uh, you know, you have another mountain in front of you and another one. It's like it never ends. Um, it's It's very complicated. So especially as an academic researcher, it was even more challenging because, you know, we have to be everything. We have to wear all the cap. We have to be the toxicology, pharmacology expert, the manufacturing expert, the even help for clinical design with your colleagues, you know, uh, because I'm not MD, but I had to work on a lot with my colleagues to CSD who are physicians. So there are so many steps. So when you have to, to rely on the application, as I said, it's like three major parts, the uh, toxicology, pharmacology studies, manufacturing development, and the clinical design. I realized that, you know, you need step in every part of this journey. I went up to the pre-IND, you know, fully by myself. And again, because I didn't know <laughs> all the rules, you know, in a way it was good. But, you know, later on for Cystinosis Project, I partnered with a company, Avrobio, who sub-licensed this project for after I'm done with a phase one, two clinical trial. So it's still academic and up to this point. But the good thing is that it was really good to have them and, and help them for uh, the ND application. You need expert along the way. You need consultant. You need, you know, for the manufacturing, for all the reagents, you need to have people who will help you to fill all the uh, requirements for uh, the IND application. Yeah, maybe uh, thinking about that kind of specifically in some of the regulatory hurdles that you have to face, you know, how helpful is it actually to have companies helping you or individuals, institutes providing help that can be beneficial there? It's critical, you know, I mean, you... It's very important when uh, you work with company who are really involved in this process and that understand this process and they know what is required. You know, it's 
you will need for each of the reagents you will use to the clinic, you need to have certificate of analysis. You need to prove that this is safe. You need to prove that this is a good manufacturing practice. I mean, you need to, to check so many boxes that you need to work with experts in the field to have people who are here to answer your question and to be able to help you for sure. Yeah, that's something we're certainly trying to do at Synthego to help people with the, the clinical yeah. uh, CRISPR reagents. And so hopefully we're able to, to help you too uh, as you go along this journey. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, so far I've been happy, you know, and very you have been very responsive and, and it seems that you have a really good team who will are expert and will be able to help for sure. Thanks, Stephanie. I'm curious to know a little bit more about your upcoming trials, just the details of, you know, how is it going to be spread out? How many people are you planning to enroll in the first phase? And yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? So for Freddy Cataxia, uh, we are just at the turning point from, you know, the regular preclinical studies to now going to the pharmacology studies and manufacturing development. So we are starting that. So we are still not at the clinical stage because there is two, three years to really um, be able to find an IND. But, you know, of course, we are starting to think about the clinical trial. But, you know, at this stage, to be honest, I still don't know what will be the population, you know, what age population we will be authorized. Because this is, you know, over people who are very helpful is the FDA. You know, I think... Everybody's scared of the FDA, obviously, but you know, I for me, I, I always had a really good relationship, and I was happily surprised to see how helpful they are. The good thing I've done is starting very early on the conversation with the FDA for the Systemesis project with a pre-pre IND. Now we call that an interact meeting, and so very early they they guide you and advise you on every step, you know, the pharmacology, the manufacturing, what they want to see, but also on the clinical stage. So what you do for one disease is not true for the other. So it really depends on the balance of risk versus benefits. And so at this stage, I didn't have my interact meeting yet uh, with the FDA, so I cannot answer the clinical aspect of this project yet. I, I really need to have this conversation with the FDA first. Okay. Yeah, no, that sounds good. You know, a lot of people are now realizing you can do these interact meetings and, and just coordinate a lot more with the FDA and that that helps set them up for success in the trials later. So we ourselves have, or like I've been reading a lot of regulatory stuff just to get everything clear in my head. And it just, it, there's just so much. And I can totally imagine it's, it's really hard when you have the responsibility of taking something into trials and then not knowing, are we doing the right thing? It's, it's great to have that help directly from the regulatory bodies. So yeah. Thank, thanks for sharing that. And there is no question about that for sure. And, and that's why you're still the consultant and all the advisor along the way are very important. For this kind of work also, it's important to, to say that you need a lot of you know, funds. I mean, it's it's very expensive. And that's why for the longest time, this was mostly done by company. In California, we are lucky to have a California Institute of Regenerative Medicine who provide really substantial grant at the point that you can, as an academic, do this kind of work and pay a good consultant who can help you and get the right reagent right away. Right. And, you know, just based on what you said, in general, there are a lot of therapies that are, you know, a lot of people are working on therapies at the same time. FDA has this 
strict rules, but also they are kind of just tied up with with a lot more therapies coming coming for uh, review as compared to what maybe they had before. So we're at an interesting point where the production or development of cell and gene therapies is scaling up, but people are kind of worried about the future now in the sense that will they be able to keep up or will these therapies see the light of the day at the pace that they're being developed at? So in general, could you comment on, you know, where do you see this field in like five years? How do you think we are progressing? You make a, a really good point, and it's true that uh, as much as the FDA wants to help, there is a backlog of, you know, now that, you know, gene therapy is really exploding. I mean, there is so much going on in this field, and but the FDA recognizes that. Yeah, I was last week at the conference, and uh, there was a FDA officer there who presented, and he, he gave us the good news that they will get much more people, uh, they, you know, they got an increase of budget, so we, they can hire more people for uh, reviewing faster the uh, stem, cell, stem cell and gene therapy product. So I think it took some time, you know, to realize how impactful the field is. Now it's really, the stem cell and gene therapy are really now considered part of the uh, future of medicine. I mean, there are more and more products that are FDA approved now that are part of a standard of care. So I think uh, now the FDA recognize that and the government give more money for this uh, kind of product. So we are lucky. I think I think it would be um, better and better. Yeah, you mentioned the conference actually uh, was going to ask you. I know this year ASGCT is going to be kind of in your in your backyard in Los Angeles, but ISCT is going to be in Paris. So just wondering if you're going to be able to go over and attend in Paris. No, I don't. Uh, I mean, I won't. I mean, not, you know, I, I'm not a fan of traveling too much, you know, so it's a long, it's a long trip. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's really actually, you know, if it's Paris, I might think about it. Yeah, we'll definitely be there. But, so, but uh, I will for sure will be at the ESG uh, city. Well, de- I mean, we'll definitely. I'm part of a, of a com- committee member for you know the organization of for metabolic and genetic disease. Fantastic. Yeah, we'll definitely be at both conferences. So hope to see you. Hope oh to yeah, see you, there. Hope you too. Yeah. Definitely, we always like to end with a fun question. So, what would you be if you were not a scientist? What What's your alternate profession? Ooh. That's a good question. You know, the thing is that I wanted to be a researcher for the longest time, but I had two fields that I loved, the genetics, but also I like the astronomy. And I mean, I love also the planet, so the extremely big, obviously extremely uh, small. So, but, you know, genetics won, but otherwise I would have studied the planet for sure. Oh, nice. <laughs> okay. That's uh I have seen that for a lot of researchers, many of them are like, I cannot imagine being anything else other than doing research because there's just so much passion for it and you've done it for the longest time. So I don't know what I would do if I was not this. So yeah, but it's interesting that you would, you know, now you're at a molecular level and you would just go directly the other experience. universe. <laughs> yeah, the universe level. No, it's, it's, this has been really great. Thanks for chatting with us and talking about your work. I'm sure our listeners are going to find this episode really informative. And we are going to obviously stay tuned to see what you do next and hopefully have you back with some updates as your trials progress or as your work progresses further. So yeah, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to CRISPR Cuts. I invite you to check out the Synthigo blog, The Bench, for more great CRISPR content. 
please send us any feedback you have by contacting us on Twitter. And if you want to join in as a guest on our podcast, email us at crispercuts at synthigo.com. Crisper Cuts is a scientific podcast by Synthigo. Produced by Kevin, Minu, and me, Bobby. Additional production by Resonate Recordings. Our cover art is by Jeff Merrick. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.